Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. As I said a week ago, if you're visiting with us, new to the church, it's our practice to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but we usually take a couple of Sundays at the beginning of the year to focus on certain things like prayer and word and then some aspects of our culture that we think need special attention. And today, that is the sanctity of human life and more specifically, uh, the issue of abortion and these kinds of things. So, this morning again, we want to take our text from Proverbs chapter 24, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12, and then focus in on this particular subject. The author of uh, these verses, he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you as always for your word. We ask now that you would give your spirit as well. Oh Lord, we need so much help. So please give us the grace of heaven above in our own hearts. Help us to understand and understanding to act in ways that accord with righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I may not exactly look it, but I'm only 40 years old. Only 40. Amazing what time will do to you. Uh, I was born all the way back in 1981 just before Clemson's first title in football. Eight years prior, in 1973, uh, Jane Rowe won a court case legislating abortion on demand, virtually on demand, and the death toll since has been unparalleled. Uh, in the 49 years since that time, uh, 60 to 70 million, there or about, uh, human beings have not survived the womb on account of abortion. Now, it's just in the U.S., but it's still, that number here in the U.S. is still ten times the highest estimates of the Holocaust, which is quite disturbing in and of itself. But what may be more disturbing is that this national infanticide continues to operate 
with very little actual hindrance. As far as injustices go, it is the greatest and grossest in our day, but receives only slight press or pushback. That's why there's a ministry called Speak for the Unborn. It's not just because the unborn can't speak for themselves. It's that despite what we know and despite what we say, stats say we do very minimally in the way of consistently impactful advocacy for the most innocent and most weakest but most endangered people among us. And that is children in the womb. Our text implies that has to change. Our text implies that it's incumbent upon us to come up big for these little ones. That said, it's true. Uh, The proverb does lay upon us the responsibility, if you would ask about it, to contend for any life that is being unjustly handled or treated. But fact is, only one group of humanity is being killed against their wills at the rate of 2,400 every day in the United States of America as of 2018, which I rejoice, even as I somewhat recoil, to say is a vast improvement from 2011, which was at 3,300 every day. So praise God for that. Still, it's 876,000 babies every year in America. May the Lord help us. Now the goal of our text has to be held in the wider context of the whole Bible. What I mean is that while the proverb means to spur the God-fearing conscience to action, it doesn't necessarily mean to condemn any particular soul to hell. Uh, This is a subject carrying a lot of guilt for those who have had an abortion And the last thing I want anyone to hear amid all we're about to hear is that if that includes you, there's no redemption for you. Or or let's say you are a Christian, that there is then no no grace to forgive and or uh, restore you. That's just not true. I know folks who have been there. I know their pain. I know their grief. I know their heartache. I know they see a ghost, as it were, all the time. But I also know them to have found grace at the cross and a place in the family of God that can never be forfeited. With that, let's come to our first point here in verse 10. That we are to foresee the day of adversity and prepare for it. Verse 10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small when, as I said, we, to the contrary, want to come up big. And so, beloved, we must foresee or anticipate the day of adversity. The sage here isn't ignorant of the condition of the world. He writes, in a fallen world, and just so, he understands human nature, how we are from Adam set against what is right What is right can be taught, it can be caught, but it is not sought. Not by nature, it's not. And the fallout then is that we're inclined from birth to do wrongly, to commit injustice, 
to oppose God and what's right to Him. And so anytime a right thing presents itself, it's the pattern, it's the way of the world to give it pushback or to create adversity for the way of true righteousness. This is why the Apostle Paul can say with such certainty that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus absolutely will suffer persecution. Are we ready for that? And why Jesus Himself assures us that we will absolutely be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now, He goes on to say that our blessedness is in that, but still adversity is adversity. And if we mean to walk in wisdom, if we mean to fear God, if we mean to follow Jesus, we've got to assume adversity, and assuming adversity, prepare for adversity, lest we faint. That's why the Spirit-inspired sage, he doesn't, he doesn't want us to be fainting in this day. He wants us to come up big in the day of adversity. He essentially says the day of adversity is the Christian's time. Not to run, not to hide, not to faint, but to stand and shine as the light of life. As the stars above shine brightest in the darkest night, so too the people of God. It's not without reason that the Apostle John says those who will populate the new creation will have been marked by courage in this old creation. This is our time. Just as early Christians used to pick up babies that were left for dead on the streets and take them into their homes, such as our opportunity today. We're to lay it all on the line whenever we see the line of justice being so grossly miscarried. So a few questions. Do we see that in this instance? And do we care to see that? And if so, if we do, do we care enough to do something about the legality of murdering preborn children? What have we done for them since this message a year ago? Since then, another 876,000 have been carried away to death. So what? It can't be enough that we just enjoy our lives. That we just see to ourselves. That we just address our own problems. Job had problems, but at least he had life. A life laid bare is still a life being lived. But many, just to give us a figure in our head here, many, numbering 10, 11, 12 times the capacity of Death Valley on a Saturday afternoon, are having their lives taken from them every year before they're able to see the light of day. Dear ones, we were not redeemed for this tragedy to be white noise to us. We were rescued from the pit of hell to be self-sacrificial rescuers of people on earth like this. Practically then, will we fall faint or will we come up big in the midst of this present 
infanticide. A little trick here for better preparation. Let's just go ahead and admit that our strength is small so that we look to Jesus. Jesus loves to magnify His strength. That's what it takes. His strength in our weakness. Right? No doubt against this injustice, uh, we do need to, to knowledge up on the issue. We need to read uh, Scott Klusendorf. He has a book called The Case for Life. Look it up. Go get it. Buy it. Read it. Uh, we need to familiarize ourselves with sites such as abort73.com, desiringgod.org. Just use their search engine there. Prolifetraining.com. These are all places. I'll give them to you later if you want them. I hope you do. Uh, we need to learn what we can from our local pregnancy center. We need to learn what we can from ladies in our membership like Suzanne O'Dell and Mary Ann Fabian back there. If you guys want to raise your hands so that they can know who you are. Uh, we need to meditate and reflect on any number of biblical passages uh, affirming the dignity of God's handiwork in the womb, like we read in our call to worship. And other passages like Genesis 1.27 and Galatians 1.15 and Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. But we will not stand in the day of adversity when identifying with the oppressed identifies us as those also to be oppressed if we aren't locked in step with Jesus. If we aren't pounding upon His throne for strength to act as we ought and grace to endure the territory that comes with being aligned with God as to what is right in His eyes. If we're to stand up strong for the preborn child, we must learn to lean first and foremost into Him who is seated upon the throne. Foresee the day of adversity and prepare for it. Next then, fear God in the day of adversity and rescue the oppressed. Again, this is why nearness to Christ is dearest of all supports. The day of adversity introduces to us its own kind of fear. And we're going to have to be ready to make decisions, to decide between the fear of man and the fear of God. Either to fall in line with the world or else, or to do what God would have us to do. And so we need to be always near to Jesus, because in that way, Jesus who only did what God wanted done, really does begin to rub off on us. And to that, we have our main push here in the passage. Verse 11. It says this, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. So rescue. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. I hope trust, you see how this is relevant to the matter of abortion. If we are generally called to be saviors of the oppressed, we are certainly called to be saviors of the most vulnerable within that category. The idea being expressed here is that innocent people are thus being not just unjustly treated, they're being unjustly ended, led to death, led to the slaughter. 
Uh, they're, they're being wrongly taken away, evilly led in that way. And just there, just there, we are supposed to rescue them. We're to hold them back from it. We're to intercede. We're to mediate. We're to plead. We're to do something. We're to act in order to save. And I wonder, dear ones, where might we have received that, that rescuing kind of impulse? The nearer to Christ, the stronger that pulse will be with us. But the sage here is, is really just pressing this. Heavenly wisdom commands us to heavenly action. Or, to put it another way, the fear of God is not satisfied with mere knowledge. The fear of God is not satisfied with mere talk. The fear of God is not satisfied with mere pity. Identification with the oppressed. The fear of God comes full in godly action. And today, our focus, that action, is the deliverance of preborns from the proverbial slaughterhouse. You may say that's harsh, but if you saw the pictures, I think you'd say differently. Out of necessity, every actual abortion, that is, those that are successful, are violent and fatal every time. We've seen the child retract from the pain they experience in the process. And medically, in order to the mom's safety, every bit of that child, once deceased, has to be gotten out. And I'll just leave it there. Friends, uh, it's God's right to give life and to take it away. And yes, He has ordained government to wield the sword of justice, but the problem occurs right there when a government, because a people have lost sight of what true justice is. They say, well, justice is in the eye of the beholder. That's our thing today. Okay, well, I'm speaking now to a people with a God-given conscience. Whether you're a believer or not this morning, you have one. Let's weigh justice, you and I. Our legal code grants preborn children the rights of personhood, full personhood, in tort law, criminal law, and property law. Tort law is injury law, okay? At last check, 38 states in this great country, including the state of South Carolina, have what are called fetal homicide laws. That is, if you kill a preborn child, say in a car accident, it's treated as a form of homicide. But in the case of abortion, that same child would be treated as a non-person 
who can be legally destroyed. What's the difference? The only difference is whether the child is wanted by the mother or father or not. That's it. If they are wanted, they are a person with the right to life and they are granted all protections. If not, they are treated as a non-person with no right to any protection at all and therefore, personhood, humanity, dignity, their value are defined by the desire of the strong. And we've seen that before, haven't we? At Auschwitz, in the Soviet gulags, in ethnicity-based slavery. And I'd hope we'd reject all of that as abominably inhumane and unjust. And yet, the same principle is openly, wide open at play in the schizophrenia that enables the lawful termination of pre-born human beings. Again, Let's weigh justice, you and I. Is it right? Is it right, as one high-risk pregnancy specialist put it, to abort, quote, a perfectly normal 22-week-old baby in the womb while at the same hospital performing a very careful intrauterine-in-the-womb surgery on its cousin? That's being done. Or friends, as another asks, how does a simple journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform the essential nature of the fetus from non-person to person, non-human to human with rights? Is that right? Or what are we to make just of this principle of justice? That when two legitimate rights conflict, the limitation of those rights that does the least harm to the limited is the most just. In other words, legislating nine months from a mother that ends in the life and adoption of her child is more just than legislating the child never see one day for the sake of their mother's preferred lifestyle. The right to life outweighs the right to not be pregnant. And, just so you have it, less, less than 1% of all abortions occur because of unwanted sex. The truth is, this sexual revolution Intimacy, free from the natural consequence of it, has left a trail of broken people and aborted babies in its wake. But further, we can add this. What about the justification of abortion for, say, the purpose of biomedical research? 
We need those embryonic stem cells, they tell us. And yet, I know, because I have a friend in Boston who used to do this, I know that we can obtain satisfactory stem cells from consenting adults, satisfactory ones, from consenting adults, umbilical cord blood, and placentas. So, why advocate for abortion to get the stem cells of those children? But because I tell you in truth, there is a well-paying market for that advocacy. Like Israel in the days of Manasseh, our culture is more than happy to sacrifice children to the gods of money and prosperity and progress. But now, okay, this is about, this is about justice for women. I'm told of a doctor who calls himself uh, the Good Samaritan for his ministry, he calls it, his ministry of abortion. As a provider for women, he says, I'm doing God's work. Another, uh, last name Pollitt, I believe, insists that it is an affront to women not to be pro-life, but to be pro-choice with a conscience. In other words, it's an affront, she says, to settle for anything less than legal abortion on demand at any time and without apology or shame. Such women are shaming women who feel shame. So just consider this. Consider this. That preborn girls are aborted at higher rates than preborn boys. In fact, globally, Globally, in the last 50 years, 163 checks notes, million preborn girls are missing from the world because they were girls. There is a gender side happening within this infanticide. Moreover, abortion survivor Gianna Jessen has confronted this issue, and she just asked the courts this, if abortion is about women's rights, what then are mine? And still more, we have documentation linking abortion to breast cancer, uterine damage, sterilization, and in some cases, death. We have testimonies of depression, insurmountable guilt and shame, things that human beings ought to feel in these cases. How does the protection, let me ask you, how does, how does the protection of women's rights comport with the reality of 30 million females being aborted in the United States since 1973? To say nothing of the fact that this practice has also disproportionately eliminated both minorities and the poor from the face of the earth. Talk about systemic hatred. 
Beloved, I could go on, but as we are called to judge justly, how can we judge abortion as anything but just in God's eyes? And how then, as we know it's happening all around us every day by the thousands, can we not be moved to play the Savior? To do what we can to bring true justice to bear, to bring abortion to an end, and to bring life back into our world. As the people of God, we must foresee the day of adversity and prepare for it. And as it is upon us in this particular way, we must begin to fear God again and rescue these particular oppressed. It must be part of our ministry to deliver children from this injustice. Has it been a part of our lives this year? Or this past year? What have I done? What have you done? I know many of you are involved in student ministries on campus. And so, what can CREW do? What can FCA do? What more can this church do? This church has done a lot, I think, in the last year. What more can we do? Well, last then, we need to flee excuse in the day of adversity, and come up big instead. Uh, it's, it's burdening that we'd even think of finding excuse instead of fleeing excuse. But I want you to look at verse 12. It's with reason that he writes, If you say, Behold, we did not know this. <laughs> Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know the truth? And will he not repay you according to your work? Church, it will not do now or in the day of judgment to say we didn't do because we didn't know. to claim ignorance on this matter. Uh, I'm willing to grant such a thing as innocent ignorance here, but there ought not be such a thing for those who are called to be salt and light in the world. We ought to know how sin is breaking our world so that we're able to actively and intelligibly apply the restorative medicine of the gospel to it. Yes, we, we're to be chiefly concerned with the conversion and the, the renovation of souls, but that's not to say we're to wield no influence whatsoever in the public square. We can allow ourselves to be pushed out of that arena. As the public square is made of people and people are born again, that square is going to be impacted. And yet we are also, each in our own way, with our own gifts and abilities and talents, to be engaging our culture for good. In a culture of death, we are to be shining as lights in the world, holding fast a book. The Word of Life. And, as that is part of our calling as the people of God, there will be an accounting for it. And the wise person lives in light of that. They want to know 
so that they can do. So that they can come up big for God and for His glory in this world because they know He cares that we do that. And that He knows the truth about us. That He weighs, not just our words. Our words are just nothing. But that He weighs our hearts. Do you see it? He knows our souls. He puts these things in His balances. And He knows their weight. So we need to ask ourselves, at present, will our hearts be solid and heavy? Or will they be light as a feather? That is, will they be weighted with truth and conviction and courage and many deeds of righteousness? Or will they be weightless? Filled with substanceless talk? The empty form of godliness? The mere hearing of God's Word, no action. Excuses and self-deception, as James says. Will there be the weight of pure and undefiled religion caring for the uncared for and the endangered while keeping oneself unstained from the world? Or will we be content to claim ignorance? I did not know this. The sage intends to remove that excuse from the people of God. And so too will I. Dear ones, we know that the murder of preborn children is being championed today as a social good. There are shout your abortion t-shirts. Exclamation point. And campaigns that are targeted at children to normalize the practice among them as they grow up. We also know that the same folks are far less inclined to draw up t-shirts and slogans that say, shout that you killed your baby. Because calling abortion what it is might awaken consciences out of the immoral fog in which they exist to realize that the most defenseless people on the planet are being mown down by the millions. That divine image bearers are being denied what should be the self-evident right to life. Dear ones, again, we know that in the U.S., 93% of all abortions are performed on healthy mothers with healthy babies. 93%. We know that the genetic code of a human is complete and unique from the moment of conception. Not birth, conception. And that there, you have not products of conception. You don't have potential human life, but a human being from the jump. This fact has been brought up by a Harvard professor before the U.S. Judiciary Subcommittee to say, to no avail so far, that our laws, which are meant to protect human life, ought to be based on accurate scientific data. We know of a Dr. Bernard Nathanson. Uh, He once worked at the largest abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere, presiding over 60 
thousand abortions alone. He then discovered what we now call the ultrasound and immediately resigned his post, uh, confessing that he had then presided over 60,000 human deaths, while adding that, quote, modern technology has convinced us beyond question the preborn child is simply another member of the human community, indistinguishable from us in every way. We know and are not ignorant of the fact that at 21 days from conception, that is days, not weeks, days from conception, there's a beating heart pumping blood throughout the body. That at 28 days, there are budding limbs. That at 30 days, the baby has multiplied 10,000 times in size. And that there is a functioning brain. And that at 35 days, we have a mouth and we have ears and we have nose. And at 40, we have detectable brain waves and heartbeat. And at 42 days, that's six weeks, there is a formed skeleton with muscle and organ control. And yet, the earliest abortions happen after six weeks for the health of the mother. We know that by day 45, the child has all the internal organs of an adult and has begun to have their own unique fingerprints. And that between then and day 84, the child has begun to suck its thumb, squint, swallow, frown, smile, do somersaults, backflips, and scissor kicks. And that from here, 12 weeks in, with six months left in the pregnancy, nothing new develops or begins functioning at all. The child only grows and matures and develops. And yet again, by law, that child can be aborted at any point for virtually any reason, even right up to birth. And more recently, in Vermont and New York and Virginia, bills have been presented that would allow for survivors of late-term abortions to be killed outside the womb at the agreement of the mother and the doctor. Beloved, uh, we know and are not ignorant that according to the National Council of Adoption, there are hundreds of thousands of families, this is a quote, hundreds of thousands of families waiting to adopt and that there is then no such thing as abortion advocates like to argue, as an unwanted child. Yet, as of 2013, the ratio of preborn children aborted to adopted is 1,000 to 15. Because we know family planners push abortion instead of adoption because there's no money for them in adoption. We know that suffering is no reason to abort a child, particularly hypothesized suffering. You hear it all the time, why would you want to bring a child into this world? But I'd say that life with suffering is better than no life at all. How many good things do we know from the scriptures God draws out of our pain and suffering? Why say 
No pain, no gain, right? If you play sports, like you've heard that all your life. No pain, no gain. Why say that? If there's no gain in the pain. If there's no trajectory in the tragedy. It is not our place to play God. And to that end, I'll just share this story again. I did a year ago. I'll do it now because I think it gets at this. How a professor said to his class, okay, you have two parents. Your father had syphilis, mother tuberculosis. Their first child was born blind. The second was born, still born, miscarried. Third child was deaf and mentally handicapped. The fourth child had tuberculosis. What would you advise them upon their being pregnant? A fifth time. One student raised their hand and said, I would advise them to have an abortion. And the professor replied to that student, congratulations, you just killed Beethoven. Okay, we know this. The question of our text is, what are we going to do about it? Ask yourself, what can I do about it? As I draw your attention to the end of verse 12. Will God not repay man according to his work? That right there is meant to pull us into a definite expression of what Paul means by faith working through love. And that's not all about life in the church. You guys know I love the church. But that's not all about life in the church. But the church being the church in this broken world. It's about what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says in chapter 11 of that great book that through faith, the saints of old, listen, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, and so on. That is, they took a stand against the tyranny of sin and accepting the cost they impacted this world for good because they believed the very end of Proverbs 24.12. That God is the rewarder of those who seek His glory and the good of people. Church, rescuing pre-born children from the slaughter may cost us a Saturday. Right. Is it walk for life? Is that on a Saturday usually? Yeah. may cost us a Saturday. It may cost us money, baby bottles and whatnot, maybe more. It may cost us money. It may cost us influence in the community. It may cost us freedom. It's kind of the new wave in North America for pastors to be thrown in jail for doing what's right in God's eyes. It's coming for Christians all over, I think. We'll see. It may cost us some paper and ink. Writing to government entities, influential people. It may cost us the life we envision for ourselves. It may cost us our families. It may cost us our friends. It may cost us our personal space as we begin to foster and adopt or house perhaps a young family in this particular situation. But, whatever the cost, 
doing what's right in God's eyes will always prove to be worth it. And now if I may, let me say again, let me just bring it back here, how tender we must be. We really must be tender here. Particularly with the woman, the women, who have had or would consider an abortion. A current portrayal is quite different from reality. In that very few, if any women find themselves in this situation, who find themselves in this situation, are like wildly and unashamedly happy about it. The more likely reality is that they are scared, that they are unsure of themselves, that they're truly unaware. What do I do? Where do I go? They're, they're helpless. They feel helpless. Maybe even hopeless. She doesn't know what to do so that if a Christian or a church, at least in her mind, seems unwilling to love her and be gracious to her and to help her however we can, understand the abortion clinic will seem like her only and better option. God help us His living house to be a far better option, a more appealing home for her than that house of horrors. Maybe today you're that woman. I don't know. Or you're that guy involved in that situation. Christian or not, I want you to hear, please hear, there is forgiveness for you in Jesus. There is no sin His blood cannot cover. There is no person He cannot save and or renew. Here, that we, at this church anyway, will do everything we can to love you, to provide for you, to support life. And not just the babies, but yours. And if you are unbelieving, we just ask you to believe now in Jesus. By His death and resurrection, He's the only one who can rescue you from the death that your sin really does deserve and merit. If any of that, if any of that lands with you this morning, please, please, please do not hesitate to come and talk with me or talk to the neighbor right beside you. It is a, it is a tragic thing that Jane Roe started. Thankfully, I don't know if you know this, Jane Roe also repented. Jane Roe placed her faith in Jesus Christ. She placed her faith in the one who said, you may have started it, but I have finished this saving work. Jesus saved Jane, and he will save you too. Dear ones, listen, 2,400, best estimates, 2,400 preborn children are being taken away to death every day this week in this country. May their adversity be as our own. May we be the church. May we be their rescuers. May we disappoint the adversary and come up big in the day of adversity. No fainting. No excuses. Just faith working for life through love. I just pray now. I pray now. 
that we care to, to act upon these things, to act upon the Word of God. And as we do, I'd love to talk with you about ways that we can move forward together for the sake of the sanctity of human life. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We do want to ask right now, really begin by praising you for the work that you have done in the last several years where many less are being uh, led to death uh, today than they were a decade ago. But still many are. And so we just plead with you for more grace to know more of the resurrection power of Christ so that we would go out and we would be what you have called us to be. We would be salt and light in the world in a way that would completely reverse every legal decision that would bring any kind of death about. We want to see life for your glory, for the good of souls. In Jesus' name, we ask it. Amen.